1974, a girl walking to her family car on Cape Cod found the body of a woman in a grove of trees. Nearly 46 years later, the woman remains only known as the Lady of the Dunes. Who was she? Who killed her? These are the answers the Provincetown Police continue to seek. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I took a break last week, even though my vacation got canceled, because I ended up really needing that time to adjust to this new schedule that I have with everybody home, new routine, having to homeschool my kids. I hope everyone out there is doing okay, hanging in there with everything that's happening. It's so stressful. It's okay to feel all sorts of ways about it. I wish there was something I could do to help everybody, especially when I know people are not working. The only thing I could think of was to pause my Patreon for April. So anyone who is a Patreon member by April 1st, you will not be billed for the month of April, but you will still get the same benefits, the ad-free episodes, the bonus episode, all of that. You'll still get it. I don't have the same ability to pause Himalaya Plus. I talk to them, they talk to the people who manage the app, and it's just not a function they currently have. Though they have added it to the list of possible future functions, but that doesn't help us right now. So if you subscribe on Himalaya and pay the monthly fee there, Email me at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. Send me your PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo, and I will refund you April's payment. The only other thing I know to do is what I'm doing with myself and my kids, and that's trying to keep as many things normal and routine as possible. So that means I'm still going to be making this show, even though I'm doing it in between math lessons and reading lessons, even though listens are down right now, particularly with true crime shows, I'm going to be here making the show for anyone still listening. And if you're someone listening to this in two months, three months, four months, whenever things calm down again, welcome back. Tonight's case is one I've wanted to cover for years even before Crime Lines, and it is Lady of the Dunes, a.k.a. the Provincetown Jane Doe, found in 1974. I want to thank Jess for the research on this one. This case takes place in Provincetown, Massachusetts. This town is on Cape Cod. It's on the peninsula. And for those unfamiliar, Cape Cod is shaped like the arm of someone showing off their bicep. So picturing that, Provincetown is the hand of the arm. It is the tip of that curled peninsula. Like most of Cape Cod, there is a small but stable population of permanent residents, about 3,000 in the mid-1970s, about 3,000 now. But Provincetown is flooded with tourists and seasonal residents in the summer and has been for at least 100 years. So it's not surprising that the Lady of the Dunes, who we will call the Lady in this episode, was found in July in a summer month. Provincetown is set up where there is a strip on one side that has like the homes and the businesses, 
but the bulk of the city is uninhabited. It is part of the Cape Cod Seashore Park, which is sand dunes and pine trees everywhere. But there are a few dune shacks dotting the park, and they are just what they sound like. They're primitive homes with no electricity or plumbing, right on the dunes and near the water. You have to get a permit to drive right to them since the road is actually just sand. So most people visiting for just the day will drive to the visitor center park and then walk up. Leslie Metcalf, who was about 12 or 13 at the time, was in Provincetown visiting friends who were staying at one of these dune shacks called Seascape. When the family was ready to leave, they started walking up towards the visitor center, which is a third of a mile away as the crow flies, but maybe longer of a walk if you're sticking to the paths. But still, we're talking less than a 10-minute walk. As Leslie and her sister walked, their friend's dogs started following them, and one of them, a beagle, ran off the path and started barking in the woods. Beagles are known for wandering wherever their noses take them, and children are known for following right behind them. So Leslie followed the dog to see what he was barking at. When she first walked into this dense grove of pine trees, Leslie thought she saw a dead deer lying in a small clearing, but soon realized it was actually a person. Leslie ran back to her parents and told them what she saw. They all then went back to the dune shack, which was closer than the visitor center, and told their friends what happened. There's no phone in these primitive shacks, obviously, so someone got in their Jeep and headed off to alert the park rangers. When authorities got there, they came on a truly grisly scene. They knew the victim was a woman, but that's about it. She had been dead for a week, though some accounts put it at more like 10 to 20 days. Between the hot weather, the sea air, and honestly, the dune flies, it made it really hard to judge the decomposition rate. Let's talk first about the scene. This grove of trees is pretty thick, and it would have seemed an odd spot to just sunbathe, since you would imagine there would be too much shade. But that's exactly the position the body was in. She was lying on a green beach blanket, nude and face down, with her blue jeans and blue bandana folded under her head like a pillow. She was a little bit more on one side of the blanket than the other, almost giving the appearance that she had been sharing the blanket. If not for her injuries, it almost looked like she just died while sunbathing there. But like I said, that's if not for her injuries, which were extensive, but mostly post-mortem. What killed her was a massive blow to the left side of her head. After death, the person who killed her went to great lengths to hide her identity. He, and I'm going to go with he here because statistically speaking, this was most likely a man, he cut off her hands and took those with him. Some of her teeth were removed, though not all of them. He also attempted to decapitate her and nearly succeeded. But decapitation is difficult physically 
and psychologically. So for some reason, he did not finish this task. Police suspect that a military trench digger or something like that was the weapon used in this attempted decapitation, which I take to mean a metal shovel. I looked up military trench digger and I just saw huge machines, but I'm pretty sure it's one of those small metal shovels. A lot of people have them in their camping gear. A lot of people go to the beach or who are camping at the beach especially will have one. The lady's face was also severely beaten, though it isn't clear to me if this was another attempt to disguise her identity or if that was part of the overall attack that led to her death. Going to these lengths to make her unrecognizable tells me that the person who killed her is known to her. He would be connected back to her because a complete stranger with no ties to a person doesn't usually care that much if they're identified, if they're found. They'd rather them not be found at all, but they don't care so much about the identification because there's no way to link the victim to the killer. There was a theory that the lady may have a criminal record, because why else take the hands? Most people aren't routinely fingerprinted. I know there was a big push when I was a kid to fingerprint children in case they went missing, but that was not in place when the lady was a child, which would have been the 40s or the 50s. Most people are not routinely fingerprinted, and certainly not at that time. But you were if you had been arrested. But there was no database, local or national at the time, that the police could just run her basic description through to find possible arrest records to follow up on that lead. It has been reported in a few places that there were either piles of pine needles where her hands would have been, or the ends of her arms were in the sand. Either way, they were trying to disguise the fact that her hands were missing. This seems like an odd thing to do, unless her killer was hoping that people passing by early on would just assume she was sunbathing and keep walking as to not disturb her. That's the only purpose I can see this serving. It's not known if the area where the lady was found was a dump site or it was the murder scene. There was blood there, but no other signs of a struggle. That doesn't necessarily rule out it being the murder scene. It could just mean that she was lying there, either asleep or with someone she trusted, and was attacked out of the blue. But because of the facial injuries, the removed teeth and hands, and the attempt at decapitating her, you'd expect to see signs of something. I mean, that's not easy work. Reports said that the pine needles under the blanket were not disturbed. And I can't imagine someone did all of this on the blanket without leaving some sign. Though the pine needles not being disturbed under the blanket may just be a little bit of lore that got into the story. It kind of has that ring of being one of those creepier things that may not actually be true, but I did want to present it. But even if she was killed there, it definitely sounds like she was moved and somewhat posed in the sunbathing position afterwards. So like I said, face down on the beach blanket with her jeans and her blue bandana serving as a pillow, there was no shirt or bikini top 
or any other top found at the scene. A few sources say she was sexually assaulted with a wooden object, and one specifies that this was after death. Not sure how they know that, but if that is correct, then this may have been less about assaulting her than it was about making investigators think that was the motive. That would make them start looking away from people who know her and more towards a stranger, which I don't think this was a stranger killing. The autopsy showed that there were no drugs or alcohol in her system, and the blow to her head was the cause of death. As far as clues as to who she was, her age was originally listed very broadly at 20 to 40 years old. It was later narrowed down to 25 to 35. She was 5'6 to 5'8. She was around 140 to 150 pounds. She had reddish-brown hair that was pulled into a ponytail, and she appeared to be athletic. But the most notable part about her were the teeth that were left. Though some teeth had been removed by her killer, among the ones left were several gold crowns. This is fairly extensive and expensive dental work, figuring she was likely somewhere around 30 years old. She had seven gold crowns, estimated to be worth at least $5,000 in the mid-1970s. So we're talking more like $26,000 and up today. This dental work was the best evidence they had to identify the lady because they had pretty much nothing else. DNA was still over a decade away. Without her hands, obviously they didn't have fingerprints. With no locals reported missing, it was believed she was one of the many tourists to the area. But you can't exactly ask locals if they saw anyone unfamiliar, because everybody in town in the middle of the summer is a visitor. Whoever did this had at least a week, if not longer, to get out of town, and he would have blended into the beach-going crowd. And this is another check in the box of someone she knew category. The lady had to get out to Provincetown and to the dunes somehow. Even if you hike in to the dunes, you have to start somewhere. So police followed up on every bicycle and every car that they found parked along the way to see if one of them was hers. But the owners were all found, and none of them had loaned their car or bike out to anyone, and none of these vehicles had been stolen. So someone drove her there. If she was killed at the scene, she was surely there with someone she knew well, since she would have gotten in a car and gone to a secluded area with him. If she was killed elsewhere and then dumped, it would be incredibly risky to park at the visitor center and hike in with a dead body. You do need a permit to drive onto the dunes, so the police even looked up everyone who had a permit, and that didn't lead anywhere. I'm sure there are people who drive on the dunes and on these sandy paths illegally all the time. That is an increased risk that a park ranger would stop him when he had a dead body in the car, but I wouldn't rule it out. In the hopes of identifying her, the lady's description was blasted out across the country. They were really hoping first to tie her to a missing persons report. 
That didn't pan out. They sent her dental work around the country, and they even published in dentist industry magazines to see if anyone remembered performing that type of work on a young lady. They put articles in detective magazines and police publications, but no fruitful leads came from any of this. When no one came forward, the lady was buried on October 19, 1974, in a donated casket. In 1980, she was exhumed so evidence from her body could be collected, and they used her skull to make a reconstruction that was hopefully more accurate than earlier sketches. When she was reburied, they did not put her skull in the casket again because they thought they may need it for future investigations. And the new reconstruction led to one pretty solid lead on her identity. In the late 1980s, someone noticed a resemblance from the sketch to a young woman named Rory Jean Kessinger, who was last seen in 1974. So in 1974, Rory would have been in that 24, 25-year-old range. She was a bit shorter than the Lady of the Dunes, but these things can be off, both the estimate of the lady's height and the reported height of Rory. Rory's weight was quite a bit lower. She was only about 118 pounds, but people gain weight. In addition to resembling the sketches and the reconstruction, Rory also had a criminal record that would have made her easy to identify using fingerprints. To understand why Rory hadn't been reported missing and hadn't shown up on a missing persons report, there is a backstory. As a teenager, Rory had fallen in with the free love, hippie life of the 1960s. This was a lifestyle that came with drug use. And as Rory's drug use escalated, she turned a bit away from the peace-loving hippie type to being a criminal. She ran away from home when she was 15 and pretty much immediately cut off all contact with her family. Rory spent the next decade living a transient life, and she had multiple arrests for drugs, but also robbing banks, and she got into gun running. By January 1973, she was wanted in multiple states. It was in January 1973 that she was last arrested. Police in Pembroke, Massachusetts, went to a house to deliver notification of a traffic violation. Pretty mundane. But when they went to the front door, they watched as a few young women ran out the back door and into the woods behind the house. Of course, this seems suspicious, so they gave chase, and Rory hadn't made it very far before she tripped over something, so she was pretty easy to catch. When she was caught, she was wearing only lingerie and told the officer that she had been raped. So the officer took Rory back to the house where they were issuing the citation to figure out what was going on. As they walked up to the house, Rory reached for the officer's gun, but he managed to keep her from grabbing it. 
As they entered the house, he went to call for help, and Rory turned off the lights and disappeared into another room. When the officer found the light switch and turned the lights back on, Rory came out and had a gun pointed at him. She told him she had to kill him, but he managed to knock her arm away and get her to the ground and handcuffed. Rory was then transported to the hospital, though I'm not sure if it's because of the rape accusation or if she got hurt when the officer had to take her down. While at the hospital, she managed to grab another officer's gun. She pointed it at him and a social worker and yelled something like, die, you pig. Again, this officer was able to overpower her. At this exact moment, Rory was high on drugs and she was acting impulsively, but she wasn't exactly quick enough to fend off the police. Rory was charged with two counts of assault with intent to murder and sat in the Plymouth County Jail for the next four months waiting on trial. But going to trial was not in Rory's plans. On the night of May 26th, Rory made it into the laundry room of the jail where she sawed the bars with a hacksaw that someone had smuggled to her. And then she climbed out of the window with bedsheets that were tied together like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. She then made a clean getaway, and my guess is the person who smuggled her the saw was also waiting with a car for her to make this escape. This was the last time Rory was seen. It is fully possible that Rory just went underground at some point and lived under a new identity. Maybe she was like that Simbanese Liberation Army member who went on to be a soccer mom in the Midwest. But it just seems odd that Rory was regularly getting arrested for nearly a decade and then flew under the radar ever since. If Rory was the lady, it is not clear where she would have gotten or how she could have afforded thousands of dollars in dental crowns, but who knows. In the late 1990s, a private investigator tracked down Rory's mother, who was then in her 80s, and she was living out in Colorado. She willingly gave a DNA sample to see if they could match it to the Doe case. But on the other side of this, the police had the skull, and they were not able to get a viable DNA sample from the lady from the skull So there was nothing to compare it to. So Rory, for many years, remained just a possible match. There were additional exhumations in the hopes of getting DNA from bone marrow. In March 2000, they did it, but again, they couldn't get a good enough sample. It looks like they tried again in 2010, but not all the coverage in the case mentions this attempt. But also in 2010, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children used a CT scanner to make a better rendering of the lady's bone structure from her skull. While she wasn't a child, they had made an exception with this case because she had been unidentified for so long and they had the means to help. So using this CT scan, Using existing photos and sketches, they were able to produce an updated photo that was then widely circulated. 
It was in 2013 that authorities were able to successfully extract DNA, and it was announced that it did not match Rory. This surprised the detectives. They were pretty confident that the lady and Rory were one and the same. So Rory Kessinger remains missing-ish. It's hard to say if she's missing or she has just successfully been on the lam since she was never really investigated as a missing person. She wasn't entered into NamUs until November 2014 when she was ruled out as being the Lady of the Dunes. Rory may have lived, at least for some time, under an alias. She was possibly even arrested under an alias or more than one of them. She's had a few known ones, like Linda Lynn Koch, Jennifer Marie Lynn, and Penny Susan Johnson. Due to Rory's heavy drug use and some of her more serious crimes, like gun running, it's reasonable to believe she died many years ago and she could be a different Jane Doe. But maybe she got clean and lived a regular life after that. If she was alive today, she would be 71 years old. Another possibility that has been ruled out is Frances Uwalt. Frances left a bar in Forsyth, Montana at 11 at night in August 1973. So we're talking 11 months before the Lady of the Dunes was found. She told a friend she was leaving to go see her brother and was never seen again. I think she was flagged because she matches in height, weight, age, and she even had the auburn hair. But the circumstances made her not a very likely candidate because she was missing for nearly a year and somehow ended up across the country in Massachusetts. Frances was not the type to disappear from her family, particularly her three sons. She left behind everything she owned, including her car, so how did she even get out of town? She also had a trust fund and bank accounts that were never touched. Her family believes she was killed the night she went missing, and my guess is they are correct. A bit closer to home, 24-year-old Vicki Lee Lamberton was another possibility that was ruled out. She went missing in February 1974, and she lived in Massachusetts at the time. She was separated from her husband, and he believed she was dating her psychology professor. She was in a master's program at the time. But according to the husband, he and Vicki were talking about reconciliation, and they had plans to meet up after she went on a weekend trip with a girlfriend to Maine, from which she never returned. Before you side-eye the husband too much, he appears to have been one of the only people early on aggressively looking for Vicky. He called her friend, who she said she went to Maine with, and the friend said she actually hasn't talked to Vicky in a few weeks. They did not have plans that weekend and they had not gone to Maine. Then he went to the college and tracked down the psychology professor, who had been skiing in Vail, Colorado, that weekend. In the end, it seems like the husband believed that she ran off with the psychology professor, and he moved on. And her family seemed to accept that she had just kind of fallen off the radar, had 
gone on to do her own thing, but obviously something was nagging in the back of their minds because her brother started a webpage many years later about her disappearance. A police officer saw it and contacted him, and so Vicky was officially reported missing in 2010, which was 36 years later. But family had been looking for her before that. If I can find enough information and get in touch with her family, I may do a full episode on Vicky in the future because it is a very interesting case. I have a lot of questions about it. I have a lot of gaps that I would like filled in. So we'll see how that goes. But let's get back to the Lady of the Dunes case. The hope here is a familial DNA match, like we've seen in other Doe cases. But the hurdle here is twofold. One is that not all DNA profiles are developed equally. So in familial DNA searches, they use what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which we just call SNPs to make it easy. So these SNPs are the most common type of genetic variation among people. The way this kind of works is you see repeating patterns in a genome, and then suddenly a C is replaced with a T for a stretch. That's a SNP. That is a variation in your DNA. And these are, obviously, a genetic variation. Basically, to find family, what we do, not we, you know, DNA analysts, what they do is they look at these variations that people share. But what you need is someone to look at the genome, look at all those pairs, and figure out where those SNPs are and what they are. This is a specialized analysis, and that leads to the second issue, the cost. You're not just looking at the lab costs, but also the cost of the genetic genealogist who does the detective work, who goes in the family trees, who goes on GEDmatch, who makes those phone calls to everyone with the same last name in the phone book. They need to be compensated for their time. Law enforcement does not have an endless pool of money to use in their investigations. So when we're looking at a nearly 46-year-old Doe case, how do you justify pouring thousands of dollars into it when those resources are needed for current cases? And this is where the DNA Doe Project can help with cases. They take donations to help fund projects like this. And they're actively working on a number of them right now. I believe they did reach out to the police department to express interest in helping with this case. But the Lady of the Dunes is not currently listed as one of their active cases. Hopefully, it will pop up soon. And I'm going to go ahead and give them a giant plug right now. The DNA Doe Project is raising funds for two cases right now. One is Grant County John Doe, a homicide victim found in Kentucky in 1989. He was six feet, five inches tall. So this is one of those cases where if you can get to the right family, it should be pretty quick to narrow down which cousin was six foot five. That case has a lot of hope of being solved. The other case is to identify the remains of two of the victims of the Hartford Circus Fire, which was a massive tragedy. There are remains that have remained unidentified. And the Doe Project is hoping to answer some of those questions for families. And donations can be made directly to them 
at thednadoproject.org. But let's get back to the Lady of the Dunes. There was an interesting theory that came out in 2015 by author Joe Hill, and he is the son of Stephen King. He read about the case and then a few weeks later watched the movie Jaws on the big screen when it was re-released in theaters for the 40-year anniversary. Jaws was filmed largely on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off of Cape Cod. There were hundreds of extras employed, particularly for the beach scenes. A big part of the movie was about people not wanting to lose their beach vacation and the town not wanting to lose the tourism dollars, even though there was a deadly force of nature threatening them. It's literally COVID-19 and spring break, but in shark form. Well, they needed to flood these beaches to make it look like holiday goers, and so they used hundreds of extras. And the filming was in June 1974. So Joe Hill had seen this movie on television a bunch of times, we all have, But when he finally saw it on the big screen, the extras in the crowd scenes started looking more like individuals, and one stood out to him about 50-something minutes into the movie. This one extra not only looked like the Lady of the Dunes, but she had on blue jeans and her hair was pulled back with a blue bandana, just like the one the lady was found with. In the one scene where she is clear, she has her back mostly to the camera, but she's looking to the side, so you get a pretty good shot of most of her face. Hill told a friend about the theory, then he took this observation online to sort of crowdsource the idea. And I mean, he also sent it to the Provincetown police. They said they'll follow up on it if there is ever any way to do so. There were no records found listing all of the extras on the film. It's possible it was never recorded or the information has just been lost to time. They can't even say for sure which day that scene was filmed since scheduled days were occasionally delayed due to bad weather or the mechanical shark not working right. But it also may not have helped if they had this information because a lot of people went to Martha's Vineyard to watch the filming, try to get a glimpse of the Hollywood stars. So there is a chance she was never an official extra, but just someone who got pulled into a scene. The hope is that someone who did work on the movie, maybe other background beachgoers, might be able to narrow down who she was so she can be ruled in or out. And maybe. Even the woman herself will see her picture online, laugh at the theory, and let us know that we've been on a wild goose chase with it. Like a lot of people, I spent some time on the internet trying to find missing persons cases that might match the Lady of the Dunes, and really, there aren't a lot of options out there. She may not have been reported missing officially. From other cases of does being identified, like Lyle Stevick, Lori Erica Ruff, and Joseph Newton Chandler, they didn't have a mysterious past, no matter how hard we speculated about it. They weren't spies or Nazis on the run or escaped cult members or trafficking victims or even from a foreign country. For one reason or another, 
They had just dropped out of contact with their families. It was voluntary, and it doesn't appear that Lyle or Lori's families ever reported them missing. Now, Joseph Newton Chandler had been reported missing in 1965, but he was alive and well for 37 years after he disappeared. So when he did die under this assumed name, his missing persons report from 1965 did not pop up, and he was identified through familial DNA. Could the lady's identity be in a missing persons report that got misfiled or not connected like Joseph Newton Chandler? Probably not. She wasn't found 37 years after she disappeared. She was found so soon after death. They were looking at current files when searching for her. My guess is they went back in the event she had been a runaway and had been missing for a while. We're not talking files from decades and decades ago. I'm going to say that she very likely either ran away from home or she just cut her family off from contact. Either it was abrupt, like Lori Erica Ruff, and said, I don't want contact, or possibly she was just traveling in a free-spirited lifestyle, and contact just dwindled. It became less and less until it stopped happening. Who the lady was is one part of the mystery. The second is who killed her. So let's go ahead and talk about the suspects for her murder, because there are actually a few who have come up in discussions. None of them have been officially named a suspect. I think maybe the closest was a man who was in a main prison. He was there for armed robbery, but he had a creepy hobby. He liked to draw pictures of women without hands. That would make the missing hands less about hiding the lady's identity and more like a signature of a killer. But this man didn't give any information, he didn't confess, and authorities were never able to tie him to the crime. Depending on where in Maine he was arrested, he could have been just a few hours away from Cape Cod and in the broad vicinity. In the scope of proximity in a country as big as the U.S., this is pretty close. There was also a tip that came in from Canada, but there's not much to say about it since there's not a ton of information released on it. What we know is that in 1986, a Canadian woman told her friend that she saw her father strangle a woman to death in Provincetown about 15 years before, and that would put it right at 1974, lining up with when the lady was murdered. The RCMP was contacted, and they passed the tip on to authorities in Massachusetts. The only article that discusses this lead in depth was from 1987, and at that point, the woman had moved away from Western Canada to possibly Montreal. The police said in the article they did plan to speak to her as soon as they found her, But since the lady was not strangled to death, it didn't seem like this was the likely answer. But like I said, in 1987, they intended to follow it up. It's not really been mentioned again, so my guess is it went nowhere. The next suspect, I say that not official police suspect, but someone who actually confessed to the crime, is serial killer Haddon Clark. 
Now, he's not exactly a reliable narrator, but let's go ahead and talk about him a little bit. Clark was born in 1952, which would put him around 22 years old at the time of the Lady of the Dunes murder. Like many serial killers, he had an awful childhood. His parents were abusive alcoholics, and his mother would dress him as a girl and call him Kristen when she would get drunk. Cross-dressing was something Clark did as an adult, leading some to wonder if he is transgender. Though to my knowledge, he has not come out and said he's transgender. I get a little iffy going there with these cases because I find that people will grab this and it becomes fuel for transphobic people to say, see, I told you trans people are mentally ill and or dangerous. That thinking, thinking that all trans people are mentally ill and or dangerous, actually is dangerous to the trans community. I'm going to admit that I am not doing a deep dive background research on Clark right now to find out how much truth there is to the cross-dressing and or possible trans angle, since that's not the focus of this episode. But there are criminals who have cross-dressed for other reasons, such as to hide, like Robert Durst. And Haddon Clark did this. He dressed as a woman once to sneak into a church during a women's choir practice to steal purses. So there was some function to the cross-dressing. Anyway, Clark has two confirmed murder victims. In May 1986, he killed Michelle Dorr, who was the six-year-old friend of one of his nieces in Silver Spring, Maryland. He killed her at his brother's house, where he was living at the time. He buried her at a park about 12 miles away. Authorities had zeroed in on the girl's father as their prime suspect in her disappearance, even though Clark was interviewed early on due to proximity. His brother's house was just two doors down from Michelle's house at the time, but he wasn't pursued. Then, in 1992, he struck again and killed 23-year-old Laura Hodeling in Bethesda, Maryland. Laura lived with her mother, who had hired Clark as a gardener. On an October night in 1992, he snuck into the house and stabbed and smothered Laura to death in her bed. He then took her body to a wooded area about half a mile away and buried her. Most sources I saw agree that Clark dressed as a woman when he committed the crime, and some paint this as part of his signature, but I've also seen it portrayed more as functional. He dressed as a woman as a disguise. He even went back to the house and left through the front door to make people think Laura left for work alive and well. But in spite of his efforts to clean the scene, Clark left a fingerprint on a bloody pillow or a pillowcase, and that led the police to him. He eventually confessed and led authorities to Laura's body. He then pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. Now authorities were really starting to look at him for Michelle's death. Using swabs from the floorboards of the house he lived in at the time, they were able to DNA match it to Michelle. In 2000, Clark led police to where he had buried her body. Now, Haddon Clark has since confessed to more murders, saying he started killing in his teens and has killed somewhere around 11 people. 
Clark had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia back in 1985 and reportedly believed his cellmate was Jesus, and that's what prompted him to all these confessions. He was confessing to his cellmate, Jesus, about his past sins. Among these various confessions, he mentioned that his grandparents had property on Cape Cod and that he buried bodies out on the dunes there. The police followed up on this, even bringing Clark out there to show them where he buried people just like he did with Laura and Michelle, but he couldn't. They didn't find anybody. It's possible Clark simply doesn't remember where he left these victims since he wasn't as familiar with the Cape as he was with the Bethesda area. It's also possible the shifting dunes and new construction in the previous 20 years confused him on where things were. It's also possible some of the crimes he thinks he committed are delusions. A search of his grandparents' property did find a collection of jewelry buried. Clark said it was all keepsakes from his victims, and this is probably true. A few of the items were identified as belonging to Laura. Whether they were all trophies from murders, though, we don't know. He was just a regular, everyday thief as well, and it could have been from some of those robberies. In 2004, Clark supposedly wrote a letter saying that he killed a woman on the Cape and included a drawing of a handless woman lying on her stomach. There was another drawing of a map that pointed to the area where the body was found. But it's not like this was secret information in 2004. I think Clark is a possibility here, but it would be hard to trace women he knew or was possibly dating back then but I absolutely believe he killed more than just the two known victims. There are two things about his known victims. First, he buried both, and in his confessions about killing at Cape Cod, he said he buried the women in the dunes. The lady, as we know, was not buried. There may have been another reason he didn't bury her. He ran out of time. He heard someone coming. Maybe burying bodies became part of his method later on, But he did say in his confessions that he had buried the women. Now, the other thing we know about his known victims is that there was an immediate conflict that triggered his desire to kill. And that meant that both of the people he killed were known to him. In the case of Michelle, Clark's brother had recently kicked him out of the house and his niece had called him a name that made him angry. He said he wanted to kill his niece But then Michelle showed up, presumably to play with the niece, and he decided to kill her instead. And it got back at his niece by killing her friend. With Laura, her mother had accused Clark of stealing tools while he was working as a gardener for her. So again, there's this element of revenge. That's something I think we would expect to see in his other killings. So confessions that don't have a specific trigger named I would be more likely to discount. And we don't have the information specifically about his confession about killing the Lady of the Dunes to be able to evaluate if he named a trigger. Clark did say he knows the identity of the Lady of the Dunes, but he's not going to tell because the police were abusive toward him. 
So again, here's this element of revenge. He can't kill the police. He's in prison. He can't get to their family or friends. He can't get back at them any way except to withhold information he knows they want and he knows they need. So to get back at the police, who he thinks has wronged him, he's going to withhold this information. Whether he actually has this information or not, only he knows. If the police have some holdback information about the Lady of the Dunes, which I personally am sure they do have, I don't think we can link Clark to it unless he can say what that is. Unless he knows something the general public does not know about the scene, about injuries, about something, it's unlikely he'll ever be linked. But maybe one day he'll decide to spill everything he knows if he does, in fact, know anything. The last big-name suspect we have won't be confessing anything since he is already deceased, and that is Boston-area gangster and former fugitive James Whitey Bulger, who was killed in prison in 2018 at the age of 89. This theory, though, requires us to do a little scene setting. Since the 1920s, Provincetown has been a popular spot for members of the LGBTQ community. It has been named the gayest city in America because it has the highest proportion of same-sex households. The ability to go on vacation and be openly with your partner in a public space like a beach only increased the area's draw, and in the 1970s, there were a handful of gay bars, something that was not and is not common in small resort towns. One of these bars was called the Crown and Anchor, which was known for having green beach blankets like the one the lady was found on. Many conjecture that the Crown and Anchor is where this blanket came from. But Provincetown in the 1970s was also a popular place for another group, drug runners. It's only 90 minutes from Boston, so it has proximity to the city. It's remote, and most of the town is coastal, so lots of access to the water. Well, Whitey Bulger was known for both of these scenes, gay bars and drug running. An author named Sandra Lee, who was nine years old in 1974, came forward several years ago to point the finger at Bulger, or Uncle Jimmy as she knew him. When she was a child, her stepfather was an associate of Bulger's, and Bulger would show up in Provincetown while the family was vacationing there. He was there in July 1974, and there are vague mentions of witnesses having seen him in the company of a woman who looked like the lady. Sandra said she actually saw the body before it was officially discovered. So two days before Leslie found it and told her parents, Sandra said she was walking her own dog and was led to the same grove of trees and she could smell something rotting. She looked and saw the body and she remembers the wound to the neck and the green blanket but said the bottom half of the body was covered. Sandra has accurately pointed out where the lady was found, which does bolster her claim, though I think if you're familiar with that area, you would probably know. But when she did find 
the body. She was nine years old. She was scared, confused, and she didn't tell anyone. The green blanket looked familiar to her because her stepfather often spent his time at the local bars, and he would come home with one of the green blankets around his shoulders if he was walking home from the Crown and Anchor when it was chilly out. Her stepfather was also an aggressive drunk, so she wondered if he might have had something to do with the murder himself, but her theory is that it was likely Whitey Bolger. And this murder is similar to another one Bolger was implicated in. 26-year-old Deborah Davis was the girlfriend of Bolger's right-hand man, and she found out the two were FBI informants. Bolger was accused of killing her to keep her quiet. He allegedly strangled her and then pulled out some of her teeth to make her harder to identify, which is similar to what happened to the Lady of the Dunes. Sandra Lee ended up writing a fictionalized novel based on her experiences with this case, and it is called The Shanty, if anyone is interested. Bolger makes for an interesting suspect. So does Haddon Clark. But the odds are this was someone that the lady was in a relationship with. They went to the Cape for a weekend, and her partner killed her. My guess is that neither she nor her killer had a lot of connections to the area. Where she was found was off a path that anyone could find. It's not some secret spot only known to locals. I think he was able to slip away and go about his life. As for identifying the lady, forensic genealogy is the best bet. She was likely born between 1940 and 1950, so she would be 70 to 80 years old had she survived. This means her parents are likely deceased, though that is not a given. My dad is 70, and both of his parents are still alive. And my mother-in-law is 80, and her mother is still alive. We have some longevity genes, obviously, and I know that's the exception. Friends, siblings, cousins, they may also all be gone. The people who would have firsthand memories of the lady. That means that we have to hope there's a niece or a nephew out there wondering about their aunt who everyone said wandered off one day and they start digging. Or they see one of the reconstructions and realizes it looks like someone in their family photo album. But honestly, it's almost surely going to be a second cousin who uploads to Jedmatch who closes out this doe case. But in the event you have any information on the Lady of the Dunes, you can call Provincetown Police at 508-487-1212. This number, as always, will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC, Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 